Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The Ontario government now has backed out of an agreement that was supposed to sell the brow lands around Century Manor. That's, of course, right on the brow there in the West Mountain. The sale of the lands would have helped pay for affordable housing. Chad Collins is the counselor for Ward 5 and, of course, has been intimately involved in the housing file for many, many years. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, give us the lowdown on this. Chad, thanks for the time. Appreciate you joining us today. Thanks for having me on, Bill, and good morning. This uh, Good morning to you, too. This must have knocked you off your chair. Yeah, it came as a complete shock. And, um, you know, as you recall, at the tail end of the last provincial election, um, uh, Mr. McMeekin, MPP McMeekin, had made an announcement at 191 York, which is a very large city-owned property in the downtown, outlining the deal um, that the province had in place to assist uh, Mohawk College with their expansion plans. Of course, the city was a partner in that, and as it relates to the Browlands, and uh, you know, at the end of the day, there was going to be some affordable housing funding, which would allow us to move forward on the 191 York site. And um, and I think the specific question was actually asked of uh, of, of MPP McMeekin, uh, as it relates to you know, is this set in stone, and can a, can a government undo your announcement today? And you know, he, his he responded in the affirmative, saying that. Um, no, it's um, in fact this this money is uh, set in stone and and uh, will not be impacted by whatever new government um, you know comes into uh, into play after the provincial election is over. And of course, now we found that that uh, certainly isn't the case. And um, and so it sets us back some. You know, you've you've covered Bill extensively the affordable housing issues that we're facing here in this in the community. We have over sixty eight hundred. Names on the affordable housing wait list, and I think in uh, Matthew's story in the Spectator today, uh, you know, he points out that that that's uh, sixteen thousand people. When you start to look at uh, the um, you know spouses and children that are attached to that file as well, and so and that that trend it, that uh, list is trending in the wrong direction. It keeps getting longer with the uh, house prices and the real estate prices rising locally. It's just becoming much more uh, harder for individuals to find. Uh, rental units. Well, and, if, and it's more and more difficult for cities, municipalities like Hamilton to find the funding for it. That's why I, I, a lot of people are scratching their heads about this, Chad, because the reality here is this was a very creative deal that was struck was. that actually satisfied the city's need for money for housing, mm-hmm. Mohawk College's need uh, for expansion, uh, and pos- possibly, and man- matter of fact, likely, of course, the preservation of a historic building over at Century Manor. It seemed to be a win-win, and, and it's selling off a piece of property that, frankly, the province doesn't want. Yeah, it was really, I mean, you just, you, you've described it quite well. It's a win-win situation for all of the stakeholders involved. And um, and, it, and it's, it allows a, a initiative or initiatives, when you start to include the Mohawk uh, um, um, project, it allows these to go forward without impacting the local tax base. And that's what we've been trying to do over the last number of years in terms of using our the equity that we have in our properties and, of course, you know, we own many properties in the downtown core. 191 York is, is one of them. It's currently um, home to the offices of uh, Community Living Hamilton, who offer tremendous services in, in the city. And so we've been looking at our real estate holdings and trying to find ways and means in which to leverage the equity in those properties um, to create more affordable housing units. And we've been very successful at it. And in this instance, 191 York is a very large property. It's one of the largest properties you'll find in the core. Uh, it has uh, a one-story uh, building on it right now with, with the offices that I referenced. It has a very large parking lot on it, and it's a hop, skip, and a jump away from the corner of uh, uh, York and Bay, where we have the uh, First Ontario Centre. And so it's centrally located. It's on a transit line. It really has everything going for it in terms of, from a development perspective. And when we, um, you know, when we looked at the property, we thought, wouldn't it be a great opportunity to go out to the private sector 
the zoning on the site it allows uh, I believe it's over 25 stories and so there's tremendous density opportunities available and and if you recall the um, you know the brief uh, plans that we had outlined in in the paper just from our the preliminary drawings we had two towers on that site so it allowed a lot of density it took advantage of public transit and it and it was an opportunity it was a carrot for the private sector to come forward and say we want to be a part of this and it'll be a mixed income development. It'll be one where we have affordable housing units that would have been managed by City Housing Hamilton. And then the private sector as part of the development, which would have been out uh, through a, a tender process, would have allowed for condominiums or market rent units to satisfy other housing needs within the community. So it was a win-win-win. It, it didn't require any uh, tax dollars at this point. And um, it was a very creative solution where the province was our partner all along. And as I mentioned in the newspaper today, you know, it's uh, early stages of this new government. And you talked about it at the opening. They all have different priorities. Certainly realize that. Um, I I think what's most concerning is that these cuts have come forward during the honeymoon stage. And there's been no messaging, no communication in terms of how they plan to replace the investments that we've talked about. So the clean energy dollars that we were anticipating in 219 and 2020 would have provided millions of dollars to upgrade our our uh, aging housing stock, we have 7,000 units that are owned by the citizens of Hamilton, uh, 14,000 of them across the city uh, with other providers in the mix. And so we lost that funding, um, I think, within the first couple of months of their of their uh, mandate. And, um, and now this. And it's been really crickets in terms of uh, what their plan is to assist uh, either with replacing these dollars or creating new dollars for affordable housing providers. And it's not just for city housing all affordable housing providers across the city, and there's 30-plus of them, are all in the same situation. We're all looking for resources in terms of um, replacing our aging housing stock, and we're all looking for resources to create new units to get at that wait list. The, the concern here that I, we should have, and your point's well taken, uh, the government has said nothing yet about how they plan to, to make up for the shortfall. The mm-hmm. bigger question is they haven't even said if they're going to make up the shortfall. I mean, they may just say you guys are on your own because as of now you are. I mean, this is this is the second hit you've taken in the last couple of months, uh, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to housing. You had counted on $17 million from the province, from cap-and-trade, for mm-hmm. repairs to these units. So, so yep. So the ones that are already in existence could be repaired and be inhabitable again. That's gone. They just said, no, you're not getting that anymore. The school board's in the same situation. And now they're saying they're not going to sell a piece of land that's still surplus to them. I mean, it, it was a win-win situation for everybody. you got to wonder just what is the motivation right now and what is their plan? Well, I understand they ha- you know, they've talked about a deficit that they're dealing with across the province. And I, I certainly understand the need to, um, to look at where your expenditures are. Um, I certainly understand that with every new government, there's a, a new plan for the province. Um, and same happens federally, same happens municipally. When there's new people around the table, they have ideas. They were elected on a mandate and a plan. I don't recall, um, you know, part of the plan being uh, taking money out of the system related to affordable housing. It is one of the main issues right now in the municipal election. Um, I think across the board, not just here in Hamilton, but if you're following what's going on in Toronto and elsewhere, all cities across Ontario and across the country are talking about a housing crisis. So it's hard to understand how the province um, doesn't plan to, to play a role in, in addressing that issue. Um, we're cert- we've certainly looked to the federal government as well, who've provided limited resources, uh, at least up until this point in time, and we're anxious to see what election announcements they're going to be making later this year and early next. Uh, something is coming from the feds, we just don't know yet. But it's hard to have uh, it's it's hard to move forward on this on this file, Bill. And you've covered it extensively. The municipalities just can't do it alone. We just don't have the resources. Again, we've been very creative. We've used our 
the hydro monies that have been forwarded to us um, um, provincially. We have uh, certainly used our own land as, as leverage. We have nine projects alone for City Housing Hamilton. Many of them are, are using properties that the city owns to assist with those developments, to offset the pressures that it will create from a budget perspective. And so we're, we're utilizing underperforming um, parking lots in the downtown. We have two of those. We're using, you know, Macasa has uh, some green space around it that will allow us to take advantage of some excess property there to build another building. Uh, Councillor Marula purchased the uh, City Motor Hotel many years ago. We've now purchased that um, um, and, and made contributions there to, to get that property. McQuesten in terms of Roxborough. And the list goes on and on in terms of, and, and in all those situations, we've taken advantage of land. And, and that re- reduces the reliance then on the tax levy. And, it, and it's hard to move forward with one or all of these with just one uh, government partner at the table. It really takes all three of them. Um, we're, we're certainly make the, make, making the best of a bad situation in the interim, but we're waiting for the other two to the, come to the table with resources and with a plan. We need budget certainty over the next number of years. Our housing stock just continues to get older and older, and um, it's, it's aging in many of the major components and buildings. Uh, you know, we've seen articles in the newspaper in the last couple of weeks in terms of elevators not working and, you know, people, people having to deal with leaky roofs. Um, those units are 40, 50, 60 years old, and uh, they, they can't uh, continue with Band-Aids. They need to be replaced, and uh, that won't happen without... Um, you know, a, an injection of resources from both the federal and provincial governments. And, and listen, I understand your point. You're absolutely right. Governments have different priorities, different ways of approaching things. Mm-hmm. So you have to expect some sort of change. And, and we knew that was imminent when this this happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I understand uh, Mr. Ford's mantra that, you know, we want to save the taxpayer. I'm for the little guy, yada, yada, yada. But these, both these situations, both the money that was supposed to go for repairs to our housing stock, and now this announcement that kills, well, doesn't, yeah, it does essentially kill the deal. Uh, the, the government was not spending any money. They were acting as a flow-through agency, actually. The money comes in from cap-and-trade. It was disseminated to other projects like That's affordable right. housing. And That's in right. this situation, they're selling a piece of land that they don't want, and the money's being allocated. Well, Mohawk College and the city benefit from that. There's mm-hmm. no money actually coming out of the, of the province's pocket, so I still don't understand their motivation. Well, I don't know if it has to do with optics. Certainly, you know, when we're dealing with politics, there's certain spin that's put on things. Uh, again, back to them addressing the financial situation across the province. Understandable that they have to move forward with some changes. I just didn't think, and I don't think anyone thought, they'd try to solve provincial financial issues on the backs of people who can least afford it. In terms of, you know, those uh, many of the people on our wait list are seniors. They are struggling to get by. Uh, many of them are young families with a number of children, and so they're you know, if this is their plan on a go-forward basis, um, you know, I, I know he bragged about being a friend of the people, but in the early stages of their government, they've they've proven to be no friend of the people of Hamilton, especially those people who are in need of affordable housing. And, and listen, it, it, there's nothing carved in stone that says a new government has to destroy everything from the previous government. I understand right. the, there had to be a change in policy here, but yep. I, I liken this, for instance, when Stephen Harper took uh, over in, in 2006. Mm-hmm. You remember at that time, Chad, that there was some concern about the CanMet plant that was supposed to be moving into the Innovation Park just across the yep. road from us here. Yep. And there was some speculation that, well, you know what, uh, probably not going to happen now because, you know, it's a change of government, and that was a liberal mm-hmm. promise. But uh, to his credit, David Sweet, who was a newly elected MP at that time, worked diligently with John Baird, and they and they said, you know what, we're going to honor that commitment because that's good mm-hmm. for Hamilton. I'd mm-hmm. like to see that sort of attitude from this government in Queen's Park right now to say, Maybe it was the other government's decision, but if it's good for that city and if it's something that we can live with and do financially, yeah, let's do this. And I'm not hearing any of that. I'm just hearing blow everything up that they did. 
Yeah, and, it, and it's about uh, you know the plan that I referenced earlier. It would be fine if they were making these changes and were suggesting that um, they have a different way of addressing affordable housing, that there are other ways to fund affordable housing, um, even if they were to suggest that there's something coming in uh, 219 in, in their first provincial budget that would uh, make up for or come close to making up for the resources we had anticipated as part of the green energy um, uh, funding stream or as, as part of this uh, unique arrangement, the win-win partnership that uh, you know we've, we've talked about. If there was something, some messaging, some communication for affordable housing providers that said, we're going to be there with you, just give us a little bit of time, and I think we would all accept it as, yep, different governments have different mandates and, and different ways of doing business. Uh, but that hasn't been the case. Um, it, you know, this is essentially word coming out of the bureaucracy at the ministry stating that this, uh, this deal is no longer in place. The resources, uh, you know, will not flow as, as part of the unique arrangement that was formed between Mohawk College, the province, and the city, and, and City Housing Hamilton. And so we're left wondering. We're left wondering whether we are a part of a, a, a broader provincial plan in 2019 or you know is it like we're dealing with the federal government now we're we're left to wait until the next election when they start to you know hand out checks just before they're going to the doors which um it's nobody likes to see but well, look, look, it has become the the norm at provincial and federal levels we got about a minute left here i mean let's call this what it is chad this is downloading this is mm-hmm. the province basically saying you know what affordable housing that's going to be on the backs of property taxpayers in hamilton too bad so sad i mean that's that's what they're telling you here it really seems like uh, it's back to the 1990s, Bill. You and I both experienced it with the previous yeah. conservative government where it was downloading, it was municipalities, you're on your own, and, and by the way, here are some extra costs to take care of because we're no longer in this game. Ambulances, Ontario works, the list goes on. And I think you're right. I think um, you know this is uh, part of a, a broader plan, and this is just a sign of things to come. I hope I'm wrong, um, but um, you know, we're, there's no questioning that there's a need in this community and elsewhere and Hamiltonians are just looking for their fair share of resources coming from the provincial government to help us address this ongoing problem. Ward 5 Councillor Chad Collins. Chad, thanks as always for the time. Appreciate it. Thanks, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, it's uh, been a lot easier to ride your bicycle over the last couple of years here in Hamilton because of some dedication to uh, some pretty extensive and, and, and forward-thinking bike programs, whether it's the uh, the conversion, of course, on Cannon Street, or uh, the conversion on Bay Street into to, to bike lanes and some others that are being planned. But that costs money, right? Well, one of our partners in this, of course, was the provincial government through their cap-and-trade program. Well, we all know now that the Ford government has canceled the cap-and-trade program, and Councillor Chad Collins just gave us uh, an idea and painted a pretty bleak picture about what that lack of money is going to do now when it comes to our affordable housing stock and the repairs that need to be done. Cycling also is uh, being victimized by this. With an end to the cap-and-trade program, the brakes have been pressed on cycling funding for the city. If no other funding emerges, uh, guess who's going to pay for it? Yeah, you, me, on our property taxes. Ryan McGreal, editor of Raise the Hammer, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Morning, Ryan. How are you doing today? I'm good, Bill. How are you doing? Good. It's, uh, <laughs> wait, it seems like we're going backwards in time here. This is, this is downloading all over again and no funding. And you guys at the city, you're on your own again. It's, it's a little frightening. It certainly is, yeah, and I, and I don't think anybody should be surprised uh, to find out that the uh, Ford government is sort of doing exactly what they said they were going to do when they were running, which is to cut, 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 um, you know, uh, quote-unquote respect the taxpayer, although certain taxpayers are getting more respect than others. Um, you know, uh, municipal residents are taxpayers as well, and every provincial program that gets downloaded onto cities gets dumped onto our property tax base, which means we're paying more. 
Well, and and as we were saying when we talked about the impact this is having on uh, on the affordable housing uh, file as well, uh, this is not as if they're dipping into their own pocket for this. The, the, the province actually, through the way this program was structured, it's a flow through agency. I mean, the you know the, the the money is paid, people paid to get those credits, and then that money is disseminated. And this was one of the beneficiaries of this program. So uh, that, they're not saving any money at all. What they're simply doing here is canceling programs. Well, exactly, and not only that, but the cap and trade program, and the you know Doug Ford persists in calling it a carbon tax. It's not a carbon tax, and it never has been. Uh, the cap and trade program is a market that was set up for large industrial emitters. Uh, basically, there's a, a cap is set on how much greenhouse gas emissions they can emit, and uh, and so if you uh, innovate and if you invest in your business and you bring your emissions down below the cap, you get extra credits you can in turn sell those to a business that's above its its cap so that they can cover the shortfall. It's actually a conservative um, uh, economic tool that was presented as an alternative to kind of heavy-handed left-wing regulation of industries. Conservative economists and politicians said, instead of that, let's set up a marketplace and we'll... Uh, We'll let the market figure it out. We'll let investors and we'll let businesses innovate and come up with the best way to do this. It's actually very similar to the model that was used to eliminate acid rain in the 80s and 90s. And so this was put in place. Uh, it's been working very successfully. Um, you know, it's already in operation in California and in Quebec. Ontario joined that a couple of years ago. And then the conservative government canceled the project, which was developed by conservative governments. So it's it's frustrating. Well, especially from that standpoint, because it was a partnership, and, and, and when you say, you know, for the people, which seemed to be the mantra for Doug Ford as he was running for this job back in the springtime, uh, you got to ask yourself, which people? Uh, because clearly, uh, you know, the, the people in the corner offices on those big offices in Bay Streets that are saying, I don't want to pay this tax anymore, clearly have his ear. But people in communities like this that need affordable housing, that want to have sustainable neighborhoods, uh, walkable streets, uh, and safe streets, apparently don't have a voice at Queen's Park. Well, and also schools. I mean, school funding uh, for for necessary repairs and upgrades to make schools more energy efficient uh, have also been uh, some of the people who have lost in in this cancellation of the cap-and-trade program. Not to mention the fact that the companies that bought carbon credits in good faith on that uh, that project are um, you know have now are out billions of dollars that's money that you know we're potentially liable for i mean there are a number of lawsuits pending against the yeah that that other shoe hasn't dropped yet has it no no and so you know we could be on the hook for billions of dollars that these companies spent uh you know because they were engaging in good faith you know they were trying to be responsible um, you know, large industrial partners. And uh, unfortunately, we now have a government that doesn't believe that climate change is something we need to do anything about. So where does this leave us? I mean, you know, it took us a long time to, to accelerate the program. And, and there are still some people, still some people on council, I guess, for that matter, Ryan, that are kicking and screaming as we try to do this. But we are moving forward on this. And that's that's a good news story. But now, you know, you know what the numbers are right now. Apparently, we need about $3.7 billion to do the or million, rather, to do this. Uh, we've spent a million. We've got to ask ourselves, where's the rest of the money going to come from? Well, the good news is that all the money that was approved for Hamilton last, you know, er, I guess last year, early this year, in the last round of funding for these, um, the cycling fund, that money was transferred to the city and has, um, and, you know, and is, is in a bank account that's held by the city. So that was one of the last things the Liberal government did, was make sure to get that money uh, allocated, you know, for concerns that, you know, the program would be cancelled if uh, if the Conservatives formed the government. And of course, 
that's exactly what happened. So the next couple of years worth of projects that were funded under this provincial cycling fund are still covered. Anything beyond that, we have to look at other sources of funding now. Which means property taxes more than likely. Well, sure. I mean, before the province set up this fund, um, cycling and road infrastructure was funded out of our general um, transportation budget. And that is going to essentially go back to being the case. So one of the things that, that I've you know tried to argue is that money that we invest in cycling infrastructure, it shouldn't be considered as just an extra cost over and above the budget that we already have for our roads. We should be looking at it as an investment in actually reducing our overall infrastructure life cycle obligations. Because one bicycle produces essentially zero wear and tear on the road. You can run 10,000, 50,000 bike trips, and they'll produce as much um, wear and tear as, you know, one medium-sized truck. So, you know, the more, the more people we can get, uh, you know, riding bikes by making it easier and safer to do so, we're actually extending the life of our road network. We're reducing our, long, our long-term road repair and reconstruction costs. By the way, you touched on something a minute ago that I think is very germane to this discussion, that, that there seems to be a mindset uh, with this government that, that climate change is, that is not happening, and, and you know they, they don't believe in, in developing long-term programs to try to deal with this, which I find very frustrating, because it's not just the cycling program, and it's not just the repair costs, of course, for some of our, our infrastructure, like schools and, and affordable housing. It's going to have an impact on road sewers and everything else. As climate becomes more difficult for us, we've already seen examples of that, well, with heavier rainstorms, flooding, of course, because of rain, more severe weather, colder temperatures. Uh, in this climate, our roads are going to—they're going to crumble faster. The sewers are going to—we're going to need more money for infrastructure, and that was what this program was set up for. And and the question we have to ask ourselves now: Are you going to do something about this? Are you going to replace this funding with another program? If so, tell us. And if not, then why not? Well, exactly, and that's—you know—I mean, there, there are still some people talking about global warming as you know this theoretical thing that may or may not happen in the future. Um, you know, and, and to, to just to be clear, the Ontario government um, are saying that they believe that global warming is real, um, and they're saying that they have a plan, but we haven't seen the plan, and they've cancelled the existing plan, which strikes me as being quite reckless. But global warming is happening right now. We're already almost a degree on average warmer than the planet was a century ago, you know, a century and a half ago at the beginning of the industrial era. So that less than one degree of warming we already have a lot more extreme weather events. We have a century flood every, you know, every year, every couple of years, sometimes two or three a year. Um, because the winters are becoming more variable, we have a lot more freeze-thaw cycles, and that really does a number on the roads. Because what happens is heavy trucks drive on the road and they, they damage the roadbed, and then when it rains, water seeps into that. When it freezes, the water expands into ice, and then when it thaws, the ice melts and drains out, and then you end up having a road collapse, and that's what causes potholes. So the more heavy vehicles we have on the road and the larger number of vehicles we have, combined with a, you know, a more accelerated freeze-thaw cycle, we're going to see a lot more rapid road damage. You know, when the, I was going to say when the flooding started. I mean, there have always been incidents, but when it started to increase in, in magnitude, uh, you know, I, it was one of the first times many of us heard that phrase of a 100-year storm. In other words, a storm so severe, you only see one of them like every 100 years or so. We're getting four or five of those every summer now. Absolutely, yeah. And not only that, but as the city has been sprawling outwards, you know, and kind of growing on low-density, um, you know, green fields and, and farmlands and natural lands, instead of, you know, growing in sort of a taller, more intense way, we've actually been growing out and building on top of floodplains and building on top of, um, you know, river valleys, for example, 
And uh, and this is is essentially exposing more of our infrastructure to the kind of flooding and damage that we can expect to see more of with global warming. So it's a, it's a one-two punch. Well, and, and again, we, we're going to come down to the word partnerships here because the municipalities, whether it's Hamilton or Toronto or anybody else, can't do this by themselves. There's got to be uh, a, a concerted effort, a partnership between the, the city, the province, and the, and the federal government to try to address this. If, if there's one thing that recent provincial politics have made very clear, it's that cities are essentially the, the orphan children of Canadian constitution. I mean, we only exist as, a, as an act of legislation by the province. The province ultimately controls everything that happens in cities, and that means they're ultimately responsible for it. So for them, wiping their hands and saying, this isn't our problem, it actually is their problem. But, I mean, we're still working on a model that was set up in 1867 when this country was constituted. And in that particular case, I think 74% of the people in this country lived in rural areas. Uh, I think it's 81% now live in urban areas. And and these governments, and it's not just the ones that are in Queen's Park and in Ottawa now, I'm talking about the last 60, 70 years, don't seem to want to accept the fact that that means you're going to have to change the paradigm here. And that's going to mean some change responsibilities and some financial decisions. Bill, can I just can I just say how impressed I am right now that we have a conversation that started about bike lanes and has turned into the Constitution? <laughs> <laughs> stay stay with me. I, I've got more here. So, but it, <laughs> no, it, it, but it's all part of the bigger situation here. And and again, it's 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 politicians and governments that have uh, they they think in four year cycles and they're not looking at this and saying we need to do something that's going to be more sustainable. Well, the thing is, the stakes are getting higher and higher because the decisions that politicians make, particularly municipal politicians, are more and more important. You know, and when they fail to lead, when they fail to understand the strategic um, issues that they're dealing with, and when they, you know, as you say, when they when they make decisions based on the next election and not based on the next 25 or 50 years, we all pay the price. We all suffer for short-sightedness and lack of strategic thinking. You know, these what, what our governments do, you know, for and to us make a huge difference in our day-to-day lives. They change the kind of options we have available. They change the choices that we're able to make to how we want to live our own lives. And, uh, and you know, we need to pay more attention to what's going on. And with an election coming up, yes, please get out there, get educated, and make an intelligent voting choice. Because I, I can tell you what's going to happen. I mean, you know, if the if the province doesn't come back with an alternative funding source for this, for for both of these projects that we've talked about this hour... Uh, that means that city council is going to be left with holding the, the ball here, and and uh, they're going to get into budget cycles. And six months from now, Ryan, you and I are going to having this discussion about, you know what, they just cut the funding for these programs now because they don't have the money for it anymore. Uh, it was great when there was a partnership and they said, okay, we don't have to worry about that. That's provincial money. Now we can spend our our municipal tax dollars someplace else. They don't have that luxury anymore. Sure. Well, uh, Brent Tadarian was the former chief planner for the city of Vancouver, and he sort of famously says, if you want to know a city's vision and its priorities, look at its budget. Don't don't look at the vision statements. Look at where they actually spend their money. And when it comes to budget time, these kind of these these strategic ideas sort of fall away, and it becomes okay. How can we scrounge a few more dollars for this? How can we, you know where can we trim away at that? And then six months later, we talk about wanting to implement a policy, and they go, oh, sorry, that's not in the budget. And so an entire year's worth of progress gets pushed back. Uh, you know, and, and that has certainly happened with the city's cycling plan. I mean, it was developed in 2009, 2010. We were almost a decade on, and they were supposed to spend $2 million a year on cycling. Um, the backup plan was to spend a $1 million a year on cycling. They've been spending about three or $400,000 a year on cycling, on average. Some years have been higher, some years have been lower. 
But at that rate, it's going to take about 50 or 60 years to build out the cycling plan that we thought was a good plan in 2009. As Terry Cook likes to say, it didn't take that long to build the pyramids. Yeah, well, and therein lies the problem because uh, it's foot dragging. We, we elect people that are really, really good at talking the talk, but when it comes to walking the walk and actually being dedicated to these problems, I, I mean, look, you and I had this discussion about two-way conversions in the city, too. I, I was on council. That's going back, what, 12 years to, to when I was on council, 13 years ago. We had a plan, and we had a timetable for it, and we're woefully behind in the timetable for conversions right now. And, and again, it's city council dragging their heels on this stuff. And the amazing thing about, about the two-way conversions is that every two-way conversion has been hugely successful. It's not like we tried it and it blew up in our faces and we thought, oh, we're never going to do that again. We convert a street back to two-way, we add in some curbside parking, we make the sidewalks a little bit nicer, and the street springs back to life. And every time we do it, we have the same result. And yet each time we get to the next project, the same naysayers and doubters and squelchers go, oh, this is going to be a disaster. No one's going to come down here. It's going to be gridlock. That never happens. Why do we still listen to these people? They've been wrong every time. What's going to happen? To, there's a couple of projects. I'm going to swing this back now. we got a minute or two left here uh, to, to where we started with cycling. And, and there's some obviously some discussions going on about bike lanes on two of our main arterial roads here, King and Main Street. And, and it's going to take a courageous council decision to move forward on that because there's been a pushback, as there has been with just about every other project. But now I know the money's in the bank for the projects and the, the money that we got from the government, but we, the tap has been turned off right now. You have to wonder about the viability and, and whether or not this council is actually going to have the, the money and the dedication and the courage to actually move forward on some of these other projects and the next phases of this master plan. Sure. I mean, again, one of the issues I think that we need to really push hard is the fact that the cost to implement these things is really tiny. I mean, we're talking about less than 1% of the, of the roads budget. It's, it's a tiny, tiny investment for an outsized um, benefit, you know. I mean, if you, you know, if you were to build a, a continuous two-way protected cycle track across the city along Main Street, I mean, you would have thousands and thousands of people using that on a daily basis. You have people sort of desperately trying to use Main Street now, and it's terrifying. And I say that as a, a lifelong kind of confident cyclist who will ride in any weather and on any street. I mean, it, it would be frightening to do, and there'd be a lot of pushback while it was happening. And then six months after it was over, everyone would go, "Oh." Well, that was fine. That actually worked out pretty nicely. The street's safer. We don't have huge, horrific crashes every couple of days like we do on Main Street. I mean, one of the arguments I'd make to people who see Main Street as only a way to drive is that if you can make the street safer, then it means you're not going to get stuck behind a you know huge collision with a car turned upside down and another car smashed into the side of a building. That's one of the main sources of delays on Hamilton Street is getting stuck behind bad drivers who crash their cars. Well, we'll see what happens, and uh, maybe, maybe we'll wake up one day and the province will say, oh, by the way, we've got alternative funding. Everything's going to be fine, but uh, I'm, I'm not holding my breath. We'll see. What, perhaps, perhaps. Ryan, thanks as always. Appreciate the time. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate it, Bill. Ryan McGreal, of course, editor of Raise the Hammer. Uh, this puts an awful lot of pressure on city councillors, obviously. I mean, we, you know, we've talked about them dragging their heels and be a little reticent to make some of these tough decisions. Partnerships with other levels of government, when the council knows that there's going to be money there, that they can tap into for programs like this, for program, programs like fixing uh, derelict buildings. It makes their job that much easier. But when that pressure mounts because there is no more funding, that's in that angst, that's when you start making bad decisions. And we are the property taxpayers. We're the ones that get 
right in the back of the neck every time this happens. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, one of the more controversial stories on this side of the border this week, uh, of course, had to do with the uh, transfer of two convicted murderers to facilities that uh, outraged an awful lot of the families of uh, the victims uh, in both cases. Terry Lynn McClintock, of course, who was uh, convicted of the murder of uh, Tory Stafford some years ago. And Elizabeth Wettfer, of course, was convicted of the murder of a number of people in uh, retirement homes. Uh, and, uh, well, they had both been transferred. And uh, first of all, there's, there's a lot wrong here on, on so many different levels. First of all, the people that inquired about this well, had very much a great deal of difficulty trying to get information about this. Uh, maybe the worst thing about this whole thing is it landed on the floor of the House of Commons and became a political football, which I think is, is a, a, an egregious uh, offense to the people involved in this, to the families of the people involved in this. But it did become a political football between the conservatives and the liberals. Uh, and a lot of it might just be based on an awful lot of, of misunderstanding or, or, or lack of knowledge, really, about our, our penal system, our correction system, and about the sentencing procedure in our justice system. So to try to add some clarity, uh, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Jeff Manishin, criminal lawyer with Ross McBride, also, by the way, a former Crown attorney. Jeff, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Certainly, Bill. Where do we where do we begin here? I mean, <laughs> there's there's so much that, that I find bothersome about here. Uh, just from a political standpoint, and then we can get into the, some of the legal stuff. Uh, I I just want to make a statement. I'd like to get your comment on it. In no way, shape, or form should any politician be involved in the sentencing or the carrying out of sentencing of anybody who's gone through the justice system. Um, that's true. We'll deal with it from the standpoint of. Um, will characterize it as decisions on sentencing and the sentencing process, absolutely. Um, from the standpoint of a concern, if, uh, for example, you saw a trend in the courts to suggest that certain categories of offenses weren't dealt with harshly enough, and I'm getting away from the individual offender bill, yeah. that you say, gee, something's wrong with the criminal code and it should be amended. We should have different sanctions, we should have different punishments, or alternatively, because the provinces are involved in the administration of criminal justice, if there was concern that the attorney general ought to indicate to crown to indicate to crown attorneys they ought to change their policy, or they should say to crowns there is a different policy and more stringent positions should be taken for certain categories of offenses. Fair game in the political realm. And, and as a politician, that individual's responsibility is to introduce legislation, have it debated and passed or not passed, but but not to simply say, hey, I don't like the way they treated that guy. I want a harsher sentence. Well, true, although we have to be a little careful on that, Bill. I'm going to take take your starting point and use it as an illustration of how people can, I'll call it very, very carefully, a misunderstanding or misperception of just what's going on here. And I'll say it this way. When the government takes a position, oh, we don't want to interfere in the judicial process. This criticism by the conservatives constitutes, they would expect us to interfere with the judicial process. We can't do that. And and you are, I think, ambulance chasers was the phrase. Which was yeah, that's what kind of an analogy that didn't quite work for me. I mean, do you say you want to grab headlines? Do you want to pick up on incidents to try and embarrass the government? Well, fine, but ambulance chasers. And it's not because I, I I'm in that branch of litigation. Okay, <laughs> but but I didn't quite see the analogy. But here's the key starting point. These individuals, and we'll stay with uh, McClintock first. She has been sentenced. So what's going on now has nothing to do with the sentencing. And legislation and objections and concern on the judicial process, the judicial process for McClintock is finished. She was sentenced. What we're dealing with here has to do with placement of individuals by Corrections Service Canada. 
And that's all, we might characterize that more as administrative at this stage. It's not sentencing at all. And so to get into the realm, now we go to the next step of saying we're going to have legislation, we're going to put forward proposed legislation that a given individual should be sent back to a given institution. Totally wrong-headed, too. I'm with you on that front. I don't think that's the role of opposition. I don't think that's the I think what that constitutes is really kind of headline-grabbing. Now, all that being Yeah, a pox said, on both their houses from yeah, a political standpoint. Say, you could say, I mean, and in fact, if we even went back, we can put a pox on another house if we want to, and you could say it's Correction Services Canada. Okay. Correction, Correctional Service Canada, that's the correct, that's the correct <laughs> sorry, title. They're the ones that make the decision with respect to the placement of inmates. And when we're dealing here with two women who have got life sentences, and in each case there's a determination made that you know, the... the criminal, the individual who's been convicted and been sentenced to life, is transferred from one institution to another. Big outcry. Well, they have the mandate to make those kinds of decisions. Correctional Services Canada, get the, that's their responsibility to determine where the appropriate place is. Somebody serving a life sentence doesn't automatically go to one place or another, and there's no We'll characterize it as community-wide or national right to say they should be an institution A as opposed to institution B. And further, the the over the Minister of Public Safety Canada isn't looking over the shoulder of the uh, Commissioner of Corrections, who is looking who isn't looking over the shoulder of the Senior Deputy Commissioner, who is looking over the shoulder of anybody responsible for making determinations on risk assessment, uh, particular institutional resources, particular needs and concerns for an offender, and where that offender should be placed. That's their function. Now, did they make the right call in this particular case to have this person, uh, to have McClintock transferred to an Indigenous Healing Lodge in Saskatchewan? Boy, if anybody was sitting with me and said, this is what we're thinking of doing. The exercise is always, how will this play out on the front page of tomorrow's Globe and Mail? I wonder if anybody even asked that question. You know, and I, I, I can't answer that, but when you have high-profile offenders such as this one, you better have a darn good basis to be able to justify and support um, why you did what you did. And you have to be ready that when the firestorm of criticism, and it's not like you have to issue a press release to everybody saying, you know, to the world at large, we have transferred this offender from this institution to that one. And the healing lodge in Saskatchewan, from what I've read, Bill, and from what I understand, is classified as a, like, medium security institution. Mm-hmm. I don't know the scope of what programs they do and do, don't offer, but from what I've read, it was meant to provide an additional resource, particularly in Western Canada, where you have a significantly high number of indigenous, offend- indigenous offenders, to offer the kind of community and cultural resources that may be more important and beneficial for them while serving their sentences. There's two points about that, Jeff, if I could. First of all, she was classified as a a medium risk, okay? Uh, What boxes do you have to check off to make that determination? And this is Corrections Canada again, because they're the ones that are doing these assessments. Sure, it's not as simple as the, it, it will certainly, an important part of it is the offense, but also, you know, whether they do some form of psychological testing of the individual, if they've got a pre-sentence report, if they, you know, they've got certainly detailed information on what the basis of the offender's involvement was in, in the particular circumstances, um, to try and identify whether there's anything, any, they have a series of criteria or category to determine what risks the individual presents, what his or her particular needs may be, what the resources are for the institution. And it's a classification process, and it may change over from year to year after they're initially in. 
I don't know the full comprehensive checklists and things they do, but I can assure you, Bill, they have their own categorization and criteria. Okay. So, does, so, does every does every prisoner, everybody who's uh, who's serving time, do they go through those evaluations? Yeah, I mean, if you got somebody who's serving weekends, not not important. Uh, yeah, yeah. But if you had somebody serving six months or two years or life, they will have to start because we have a number of different institutions at the provincial level for sentences of under two years, or the federal level for sentences of over two years, and you try and determine. I, you know, obviously, too, for the most part, offenders are going to be serving sentences in the province in which they live. Okay, and which and where they're from. Sometimes it happens people get transferred from one province to another. There may be certain needs. There may be programs in one place or another. There may be risk concerns from who knows security resources, all that stuff. But yeah, the assessments and placement is part of the process of determining where the individual offender should go. And in in this particular case, as you say, this is halfway across the country. Uh, which is surprising to some people. It's a, mi- a medium security institution. Uh, no walls, no fences around it. Uh, out in the middle of nowhere, we're told. But uh, there have been escapes. And uh, the other thing, of too, is, as you mentioned, this is an indigenous uh, healing lodge. Uh, there are people living there, and, and there are children living there. Uh, you know, who was it that said, oh, I think it's okay to put somebody who just murdered a young girl and ha- you know, hammered her to, death, to, to, to put this in a facility where there are other young kids? You know, when, Bill, when you say that, I don't know. I, I'm not. Are, are you sure of that, that there are kids living in this That's what we're told, yeah. Yeah. Um, I can't answer the question as to what the arrangements are, because presumably she wouldn't be the only offender there. Okay, in terms of deciding that, I mean, you raise a great question. And in terms of taking somebody involved in a sexual offense involving children, although her role to a significant, you know, as I recall it, she was involved in taking the child and then going with that guy that she was with, you know, and basically participating in or assisting him in doing the things that he did. And ultimately, if I recall it, she gave a full statement. She pled guilty, and she testified against him. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, if there are children there, obviously, the question of the security of the children ought to be a paramount consideration, and they'd have to examine does she represent a risk to them, and if, you know, on, on everything that they see, and you can say, look, the facts may well dictate it, may well be a wrong-headed decision, may well be the, you know, an entirely wrong approach. I don't know enough about the institution, Bill, to comment on how and why and what steps they didn't, didn't take and analyze. I'll be more broad-based and say, gee, to raise the question you have. Well, and Women it, involved in the sexual offense, sexual offense homicide of a child going to an institution where there are children, do the math. How does that play out? How does that look, again, if we use our, how does that play out on the front page of the Globe and Mail? Apart from the issue of, would the children be at risk? Uh, these are all valid questions, and, and I want to, we'll talk about possible solutions in a second. Uh, the Wetlawfer case a little bit different, although there are some similarities. She was transferred to an uh, institute, Philippe Pinel de Montreal, a psychiatric hospital. We're told, and again, they're, they're not forthcoming very much with details about this, that it was for security reasons. I guess, I don't know if she posed a threat to staff or whatever the situation was. To, so again, there's an evaluation, a determination made that this is not the best facility for that person. How do you select where that person should go then? Well, again, in that one, from what I gather, and again, as Will Rogers said, all I know is what I read in the papers, um, there were security concerns that were mental health related, and so they transferred her to a secure mental health uh, institution or facility. The, the objections and concerns raised by a family member of one of her victims is, number one, I tried to find out where she was and nobody would tell me, and I wound up going to Global News, and immediately they're phoning me and telling me and I should get to know, and that's a valid concern. And part B of it is, and she has access, apparently, according to the website or the, you know, what the hospital indicates, there's access to Internet, and that's not right. How can she have access to Internet? Um, 
I guess all I would say is if there are mental health concerns for an inmate in a federal penitentiary, which in the institution's view and in the staff's view require her to be transferred to a secure psychiatric facility, if it so happens the one she's being transferred to has Internet and that's the most appropriate facility, that's where she's going to wind up going. And it may well be, Bill, that it's simply until such time as her mental state has stabilized and then she'll be back to a penitentiary. Uh, you know, it's, again, it, it, the exercise of let's look over the shoulders of those that are doing it and we'll know more than them what they should and shouldn't be doing, it's a pretty tough call. Now, the government has called for a review. Um, and That's what I was going to talk about. Okay, that the Commissioner of Corrections, is, and his response, he or she is responsible, the Minister of Public Safety candidate, has directed, you know, review what happened in the uh, uh, McClintock case, and that's, that's certainly appropriate. Two things okay. to keep in mind here, notwithstanding the, the bombast that we heard in the, in the House of Commons this week. Uh, this was never a political decision. It was not decided by the, the, anybody in, in either political party. Right. Uh, it's, it's a matter of Corrections Canada working within the policies that have been established. And they, right. many of them have been established for quite some time. Uh, and as you mentioned, if you think there's a, a, a problem with the law, the elected official job is to change the law, not to say, okay, we're going to make an exception for this individual. Well, but, let's stay with that for a second, Bill. They could also say, look, it would appear that the way in which your staff are administering the policy may be wrongheaded, and you should review that. Well, and that, that's, that. which is my point, which is what Minister Goodale finally did, is ordered a review. So, in other words, I want you guys in front of my desk on Monday morning. I want to explain why it happened. Uh, so there, that explanation will be forthcoming, at least to the minister at that stage anyway. Yeah, that's right. And again, we want to come back to the point I started with. None of this is judicial-based. There's a column in today's Globe Mail, a law prof in B.C. said, gee, you know, you need to preserve independence. Yes, for the judiciary, you do. They are independent. The judicial process of sentencing has to be independent. But we're now into, as we've discussed, Bill, government staff administering government policy. That's certainly capable of being reviewed. Absolutely. And, uh, and now i got to ask you, uh, when they finally do go to the minister, to Minister Goodale, and said, here's why she's over here, here's why we decided this, here's why we didn't think this was going to be a risk, does that become public information? It wouldn't be unless he provided something. And I think having regard to the attention this issue has gotten, he'll have to provide, even if it's a summary to be able to let the uh, government, let the, let the people of Canada know and the government know. We've reviewed with the commissioner the basis upon which the decision was made and just identify how much of it can be released. You'd like to think, Bill, there's still a measure of privacy interest for somebody notwithstanding. Well, I, I, we I would think, yeah, I was just going to suggest if there are things like uh, like health issues and, and uh, th- those are, are not public information, that, that sort right. of data. So, so let's allow for the individual while incarcerated and having committed a heinous offense he or she is still entitled to a measure of privacy, and so the, you know, the, the minister will have to provide some report in a public forum, but the issue of how much detail will have to be, let's characterize it as evaluated and determined, but it's certainly the, the case has gotten enough widespread attention that a, a proper review, analysis, and explanation is in order. And then we can go back to Correctional Service Canada and say, boy, the commissioner, you guys, when you're dealing with high-profile cases, you have to be more careful, sensitive, thorough, thoughtful, and it may even help to give us the heads up. You should know this is coming, so we're ready. Yeah, uh, the odd red flag wouldn't be a bad idea, would it? Yeah, yeah. and red flag may well be from the high visibility of the case, the likelihood of public sensitivity. Yeah. Okay? Um, you know, we could use that phrase generally. I mean, government officials do have a responsibility to be sensitive to public concerns. Jeff, always great to have you on the program and, and, and clear away the fog on this issue. I really do appreciate it. Thanks for this okay. today. 
Certainly, Bill. Always a pleasure. Take care. Jeff Manishin, of course, criminal lawyer with Ross McBride here in town and a former Crown, so he's sat on both sides of the courtroom. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.